40, so I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, open them up. We'll be taking a look at Isaiah chapter 40. As we look at Isaiah 40, one of the cool things about Isaiah, you remember we talked a little bit about it last time. First half of the, well the book doesn't really break in half. It's kind of interesting how the, how the book breaks up. You got 66 chapters in Isaiah, you have 66 books in the Bible. You have 39 chapters in the first half of Isaiah, the first real break, dealing with uh, God's people learning to trust Him in whatever circumstances they find themselves in. You have 39 books in the Old Testament, and the rest of the books are devoted to the return of the King and God's ability to help us become the servants He wants us to be. Uh, and ultimately that will find its culmination, you know, in Isaiah 52 and 53, as we see the example of Jesus Christ uh, as a suffering servant and God's direction for us. So, so as we look at chapter 40, here's the exciting thing. 40 is like the intro into the new section of the book. And as we go into the new section of the book, basically what he's talking about is uh, the comforting Lord is the coming King. So it's looking forward to the to the king. It's looking forward. It's it's interesting how I don't know if this is a good word, but I'm going to use it anyway. How cyclical history is. And we, we it's, if we look at biblical history, right? We have we have this idea where we have the rising of a uh, world leader, right? Some some guy in charge. Whether you go back to Nimrod at Babel. Or after Nimrod, you go to Shennacherib, Assyria, Pharaoh in Egypt, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. You have this world leader come on the scene. You have um, uh, some type of oppression over the people of God. And you have God's deliverance. You have that cycle play over and over again throughout Scripture. And it's interesting to me how similar that is to what we call eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end things. How is life going to wrap up? What's it all going to look like? And so we have this character, right, that the Bible talks about, who's a world leader. What do we call him again? Antichrist, right? you got Antichrist, the beast, false prophet, oppression of God's people, and then what happens? The deliverer comes. Now, the, the difference is, in eschatology, the deliverer comes. Not He doesn't deliver the people, he shows up. He puts his feet down on the ground, he's here. And then there's this promise that, that he'll be with us, and we'll be with him, and then we're not separated anymore. We're together, united, God's people with God in a new heaven and a new earth, and this is the promise. And so as we come tonight... Tonight, the scripture is looking forward. Now, a lot of people think how this happens um, is that Isaiah, roughly at about the chapter 39, Isaiah, nobody wants to hear Isaiah anymore. So Isaiah writes out his stuff, delivers it all to the school of the prophets. We read about the school of prophets in uh, several other scriptures, Kings, Chronicles. And the school of the prophets, probably after post-Isaiah's time, are still delivering Isaiah's prophecies that he gave them that are looking post-exilic, 
looking after the exile of Babylon. They were delivered from Assyria, but they're going to be oppressed by Babylon. And then God's going to deliver them, and we're going to see that that cycle go on. So as we look at the promises, he lays out this idea, this point. We spent 39 chapters discussing judgment of God and and uh, the, that God's people need to learn to trust Him. But now the emphasis is not on judgment anymore. Now it's on restoration. It's like the last 27 chapters are going to be dealing with more grace than uh, you had in the first 39. And this restoration is going to happen from a personal intervention with God. God Himself. The, you're going to have a lot of chapters dealing with God's incomparability the fact that there's nothing that can be compared to him he's incomparable so he's he's above beyond the idea that there is no human force that's going to translate us or deliver us to the place that we're desperately trying to get to how many many, there's a point where where writers stopped writing utopian novels and started writing dystopian novels. So utopia means the society keeps getting better, and now everybody's living these happy lives, everything's good. But we're so sure as human beings that that is an unachievable goal, that now we write dystopic. Things that look like a utopia, but really they're bad. Right? This is the, this is kind of the, the psychology of the human mind as we find ourselves moving into the final ages uh, that Scripture lays out for us. So as we look here, God's saying human will is not going to get us there. It's the return of the King that gets us there. It's Jesus Christ who gets us there, who delivers His people and provides this kingdom uh, through uh, the heart of the true servant. And we'll see him in chapter 53. So as we take a look, he says in Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That's far cry from judgment, judgment, my people, right? From the first uh, half of the book. So now he's he's calling for comfort. And not only is he calling for comfort, but then he says, speak tenderly. And that word tenderly is the same word comfort. So literally in that first couple of verses, you have the word comfort repeated Three times, comfort my people, comfort my people, speak tenderly to her. The the point is, here, we're going to be introduced to this concept of God's grace. Because the reality is, God's people always fall short. Ever been let down by a believer? You ever been let down by a non-believer? You know what they both have in common? Yeah, they're people. And as long as we're dealing with people, we have our frailties. Now, it doesn't mean you always have to give in to them, but we should not be surprised when a dog barks. Because dogs bark. We should not be surprised when a human sins, because humans are sinners. That's our brokenness now christ died to set us free and we don't have to live in it any longer we can through the power of the spirit come from out through those temptations in life but the reality is somewhat less spectacular right 
Because while we may put a couple of good strings together, somewhere along the line, we, we, we kind of mess it up again. The good news is Christ has made a way, right? So we can get a new start, fresh beginning. Isn't that what 1 John 1.9 was all about? What 1 John 1.9 tell us? 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, God does what? He's faithful and he's just to what? Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he, Christ, according to Corinthians 5.21, Christ has become my sin sacrifice. He died for me so that I could be declared righteous. I'm declared right. I have a position of righteousness through his sacrifice. So this is the, this is the thing that's missing from the first 39 chapters. In the first 39 chapters, you have frustration after frustration, failure after failure, not the power really to be delivered or changed radically. And now in chapter 40, you get introduced to the concept of grace and a declaration of God and the idea that God will pay your debt. The one you can't pay, the one I can't pay. Look, he says it right here. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Three things, three cries. Her warfare is ended. That means the battle's over. The war is done. Two, her iniquity is pardoned. Sins are forgiven. Three, and she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. Now that's the one we usually trip over. We don't have a hard time understanding the first one, right? Okay, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, give her comfort because the war is over. The battle is done. What is it that Jesus is going to say from the cross? It's my favorite thing that Jesus spoke from the cross when he said, when he said, it is accomplished or it is finished, right? The war is over. That was it. That was the culminating battle. The, the victory was won. Are there other battles that Jesus fights? For sure. Is there a war we have to fight? No. Our war is over. You have been delivered. The second thing he says, comfort my people Israel. Her sins are pardoned. Remember I said that Isaiah is dealing with a question. How do I become the person I think God wants me to be? Because I keep being this knucklehead. First five chapters of Isaiah. Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. Chapter 6, Isaiah says, woe is me. He's standing in front of God. What do I do? I'm an unclean man. God, I'm broken. I'm a mess. I do things that are wrong too, just like everybody else. What do I do? And God touched his lips and they had an angel bring a coal, touched his lips and said, your sin is purged. That's the key. The second thing he says, comfort the people, comfort them with your iniquity is pardoned. You're forgiven. God is forgiving us our sin. But then the third thing he says, now, uh, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And some, some people trip over that and think it's double the punishment. Well, it does, that doesn't flow in context, does it? Not very well. Not double the sin, and nor is sin mentioned there except that the double payment is for sin. What is the double payment? 
What is it that he's giving that is more than enough? That's what he's given. Paul would say it like this, where sin has abounded, grace has super abounded. There is always more grace. He has given her double payment. Comfort her. Her sins are forgiven. There's more than enough grace for her sin. There's more than enough grace for our failure. So that as believers, we don't lay around and and focus on how we have failed, but rather we can positively say, God's grace has abounded to me. He has forgiven me. And now my response is not has to, but I love Him. I want to. So when I fail, there's a, there's a proclamation for me. There's something that I can cling to. And it begins, chapter 40 says, So this is how I want you to comfort my people. Comfort them. The war is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned. She has received double. The Lord has given her double payment for her sin. More than enough to cover. More than enough to make up the difference. In Isaiah 61.7, same book, we'll, we'll be there in a couple weeks. It says this, Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. That's the same idea. That God has provided enough. God's grace is one of the more incredible things to ponder. To chew on. To think about. As we look at Isaiah, we should be reminded as we go through this of... Uh, many of these verses may sound familiar because we're going to hear them multiple times in the New Testament. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the Gospels. Verse 3 should sound familiar. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, the New Testament quotes that phrase three times. Twice in Luke, once in Mark. Who's it talking about? John the Baptist. We know, right? John the Baptist. He came and what? Prepared the way of the Lord. What did he, what was his role? To point to the Messiah, right? To declare the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, right? He's going to take away the sin. He is going to become the sin sacrifice that gives the, the opportunity for the declaration of righteousness, right? John would say it this way, to as many as believed, to them he gave the power to become children of God, to those who believed on his name. So we we receive that sacrifice that he freely gave that is sufficient. We receive that sacrifice and God declares us covered in the blood of Christ. Now, under the blood of Christ, I'm still a wretch. I still need God's grace, right? But Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover my failure, to cover me, make me a new creation, 
So we see the first two verses, comfort, comfort, the three promises, and then immediately a verse talking about John the Baptist. Right? So in Isaiah 40, we, we recognize that Isaiah 40 is talking about the return of the king, the establishment of the kingdom that all mankind is one of, the utopia that is man's goal that cannot be achieved on our own. Look, the first time we tried it was like in Genesis 11. It didn't work. We've tried and we've tried and we've tried. History is a long, tired story, right, of all men's attempts to gather power. Maybe even some of those places, the the men or the governments that reached out for power did it because they wanted to overcome tyranny or oppression. And so they they, they make this great run for a, a better government, a better home, but it always ends up the same, right? Because we also have this mantra, power corrupts, because we are sinners, so we sin like a dog barks, we fall. The Lord said that there is a cornerstone upon which everything will be built, and that cornerstone is Christ. And either we will fall on that stone and be broken, or that stone will fall on us and will be crushed. Now one speaks of destruction, right? And the other speaks of healing. It's important to to fall down on the stone, fall down on Christ and be broken. To be honest with God with who you are. To be honest with God about what happens in your heart, what happens in your mind, what's going on in your life, the things that nobody else knows, the, the doubts, the struggles, the things you have. God knows them all and He's not afraid of them. And He says, I'm not, I'm not uh, ashamed to call you mine. So don't be ashamed to call me yours. This is the, the call that God gives out. To his people. So we have the voice of the messenger preparing the way for the glory of God. And then you have God working his, his plan and his purpose. Look what it says in, in verse four. And every valley will be lifted up. So the low places are going to come up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The high places are going to come down. The uneven ground will become level and the rough places a plain. What's the point? The point is God will make a way that anyone can walk. Not just the, the superhuman, not just the, the most holy, but that anyone can walk because the valleys are going to be level. The mountains are going to come down. It's going to be level. It's a level ground. It's a highway. It's a road that God wants us to walk. Now Jesus described that road as the narrow way. He said, people find the broad way all the time. Because that's a way of their own desire. But Jesus said the narrow way. And this is what God's describing. Narrow way. There may be difficult times. There may be hard things that we go through as we walk that path. But God is saying, through His power, He'll make it all flat. In other words, you will have what you need to walk the walk. You've got it. Because God in His power is going to give it to you. 
Not because you somehow will have become greater. He has become greater. He has become our strength. He carries us through. And then we get the opportunity to see the glory of God revealed, manifested, because God's moving, because of God's, what God's doing in our life. If I stop and look back at who I was 25 years ago to where I am now, it's a pretty dramatic change in my life. Now, you guys won't notice it as much, but I notice. I know, I know who I was. It doesn't matter that anybody else does. It just matters that, that I know, that I can see God's hand, that power of God moving and working. So in verse 5 it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Everybody's going to see the glory of God. The Bible says when Jesus Christ comes, how's it go? Every eye will, every eye will see. There's a day coming when every eye will see and every tongue will that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of the Father, right? The glory of God is going to be seen. All flesh will see it. The mouth of God has spoken it. That's like saying God has decreed. This is a fact of history. This, that day will come. Just as sure as any other day, that day will come absolutely. It's going to be seen. Now, to describe this, where we are now, our reality, and this, this coming reality of the king, the time of the king, he, he tells us a, a story about uh, uh, what's temporary and what's permanent. Look at verse 6. So a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord has uh, blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. The one thing that we really understand about history is how temporary everything is, right? If, if things are good, that's temporary. If things are bad, that's temporary too. That's actually kind of good news. Everything in this world is temporary. Every, every aspect, the one thing that we can hold on to that's concrete, the Word of God, or God the Word. Right? Because the Bible describes Jesus Christ as the rock. The rock where we can find shelter. The rock where we can find safety. The rock where we can flee to and, and be protected. The rock that we cling to in the middle of the storm. The point is, the scripture lays out for us that he's permanent. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. And probably a few days after. He's not going anywhere. He is going to be with us. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever is a long time. God's promises can be clung to. Peter would say, would, would speak of it like this. Having purified your souls... 
by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word does not end, won't fail. God's promises don't stop. We see the decree of God, the manifestation of God's glory, the temporary nature of our reality and the permanence of the reality to come. And then he says these things are good news. Verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. There's a day coming when every eye will see. Jesus Christ is King. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. To the glory of God. And here you have the proclamation. The good news, good news. And then what do they say? Behold your God. He's come to you. What does Revelation say? I will be their God and they shall be my people. They're mine. They're mine and I am theirs. Song of Solomon language, right? I am my beloved's and he is mine. The same concept. They are mine. I am theirs. And then verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. He comes to rule. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. What, what, what's his reward? What's his prize? Well, let's do this. Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back to the plains of Megiddo, in Har Megiddo, when he returns, something's with him. Who's with him? All the saints are with him. What's his reward? His reward is not your gold and silver. You don't need any of that. You are his reward. The saint is his reward. His recompense, his treasure is with him. His bride. Isn't that how the word describes it? That Jesus returns with his bride. We often think, uh, well, probably not you ladies, but us guys for sure. Like, it's weird to be considered the bride. But if you've had a bride, you understand that that is another way of saying my treasure. That thing which I value above all things. My bride. So when God says that to us, that's, that's what he's declaring. You're my treasure. You're the thing which I value above all things. For a, for a God who has everything, you are the treasure. Little broken you. Little broken me. We are the reward that is coming with him. Look at verse 11. Look how he describes it. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in His arms. The same arms that are mighty to rule are also mighty to comfort His people, right? He's going to scoop up the lambs. He's going to hold them in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So you have the picture of the conquering king and the shepherd all wrapped up into one. Well, this is not hard to figure out who the Bible is talking about. It's not hard to figure out what is being described. Who is a king mighty enough to be meek? Who is a king strong enough to be weak? The same one with an arm mighty to save and an arm willing to cradle the young next to his bosom and gently lead those who need gently led. This is our great king. And then the word goes on to to praise God. Praise God for who He is, what He knows, what He provides. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Or marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? He's using poetic language to describe creation. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ, all things were created by Him. There is nothing made that He didn't make. Everything that is created was created by Him, for Him, through Him, and according to Colossians, and in Him all things consist. He holds it all together. He's saying, who has weighed the waters in His hand? Who has gathered the dust, measured the dust of the earth? The weight of the mountains, the creation that God has brought together. Look at what God is able to do. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him counsel? Does God need our ideas? Well, our ideas aren't going to help much right now anyway, are they? Now, we're, we're, we're a couple bricks shy of a load. Right? Because we, even if you don't think you are, trust me, you don't know the whole picture. How many times have we been offended by what someone said or someone did when that wasn't their intent? How many times did we sit in judgment over another when we didn't know the whole story? And just because I know that has happened to me once or more times, I just assume it's happened more than I know. Because the idea of me being right all the time is pretty scary. (laughs) Pretty scary, yeah, for sure. There ought to be at least a couple of amens. People, the idea, right, that, that we know that we've got it all figured out. There's things we don't understand. Who can counsel God? I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the reasons. I don't have all the the answers to the whys. I just know I can trust Him. If He allows it in my life, I can trust Him. That if it's hard, He'll give me the strength to walk it. No matter what it is. 
No matter how ugly God is able, he doesn't need my counsel. Well, whom did he consult? Who made him to understand? Who taught God understanding? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? The idea in Proverbs is described this way. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is described as being eternal. It's also described as being incarnate. Wisdom is a being, a person. And wisdom has to be eternal, because if wisdom's not eternal, then God is. Then there would have been a day God existed without wisdom. That doesn't make sense. So wisdom is eternal. You know, the New Testament tells you who wisdom is. New Testament tells you Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. He's the picture of Proverbs. He's the knowledge, the understanding. He's God's expression to you and I. He's God's expression to you and I. That's why the the Word of God calls Him God the Word. He's God's message to us. Is there another message? No. The Bible says you don't need another message. God doesn't try to tell you everything. Everything you need to know is wrapped up in Jesus. Who He is. What He provides for us. It says in verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted like dust in the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Look, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus returns, the armies of the world in some way are going to be gathered for battle. In in the plain where more battles have been fought throughout history than anywhere else. It's called the plains of Megiddo, right below a mountain called Megiddo. The word for mountain is Har. That's why you get the idea of Armageddon. And so you have this huge plain, 180 miles long. It's not some little place. Huge plain, flat place where, where armies will be gathered for... The final battle, whatever that looks like, and Jesus returns and they all point at him. Everybody who's fighting each other decides for their final thrust to all be unified in a rebellion against God. Now how's that go? How long's that battle? Let's back up. Jesus created all things and he holds everything together. So all he ever has to do is let go, and it's all gone. He doesn't need to be good with a gun or a sword. The Bible says he destroys the armies with the sword of his mouth. That means he's just going to speak it. In the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light. And what happened? Light was. In essence, God breathed in man and said, let there be life. And there was life. It won't take much to take that away. In Psalm, Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why do they all rise up in rebellion against me as though God's desire or design for mankind was somehow wretched and evil? Why do they try to do something they can't do? 
There's this thing we do as people. Psychology calls it transference. You ever been mad, but you take it out on somebody else? Been frustrated about something and no nudging. And you take it out on somebody else. You go, oh man, I, I know I've come home a number of times, bad day at work, and take it out on Kathy or the dog or the kids when they were little. And the reality is that's what we do. Oh, the easiest guy to shake our fist at is God. People shake their fists at God all the time. The one, the one common denominator of every atheist I've ever talked to is they're mad at God. Which is kind of weird for someone who doesn't believe there is a God to be mad at God. But they're all mad at God for, for some perceived wrong, right? Evil, suffering, something that occurred in their life. And rather than being anger, pointing the anger where the anger ought to go, we just transfer it. God says, why do the nations rage? They plot a vain thing. They can't kill me. Jesus said, the only way they take my life is because I what? Give it. One of the last things he says from the cross is, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. We couldn't even kill him. All the stuff we did to him was not going to kill him. He commended his spirit. He let it go. That's the only way. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I give it. You can't kill me. Why do the nations plot a vain thing? They're, they're small. They're little. They're nothing. But their rebellion ultimately will lead to their destruction. Verse 18. He says, then to whom will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with him? What, what will you compare with God? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move, that cannot know, that does not hear. Will you compare God to that? Probably been a time or two in my life I had idols. Maybe they weren't dressed up like idols of of ancient man. They were dressed up in other ways. They had uh, HD on the side of the tank maybe or a lot of chrome. There's lots of ways to have idols, right? There's lots of ways to have something that pulls our attention away from what's really valuable in life. No, it's okay to have good things and to enjoy the good gifts God gives. There's nothing wrong with that. We just got to keep it in perspective, right? At the end of the day, it's just a car, just a bike, just a house. It's my family. But none of those things are greater or of more value than God. There's a lot of good things that can become idols in our life. But to which of those things will you pray? To which of those things will you call out for help and they will answer? To which will you look for deliverance and find it? There's only one. 
There's only one that is incomparable. There's only one that is beyond value. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Can't you tell by creation how big God is? Don't you see it in his rulership over the kingdoms of the world? Verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth and he blows. And they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. All the great leaders all have one thing in common. None of them are eternal. They don't last. They pass. Verse 25 then, to whom will you compare me? That I should be like them, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might and because of he is strong in power. Not one is missing. He knows all his hosts. Whether he's talking about the host of angels or he's talking about the host of the heavens or the stars or doesn't matter. He knows them all. And he don't lose any. No one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you say these things, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. You ever felt like that? God don't see me no more. He can't see me down here. I live in Castle Ford. God doesn't see me. I'm, I'm just in a little place called Buell or Filer, or whatever, wherever we make our, sometimes we feel like we're in the dark and God can't see us. And so we say, my way is hidden from the Lord. God's not with me. And my right has been disregarded. God doesn't care about me anymore. He doesn't see me. He doesn't care about me. These are the lies that we whisper. These are the things that we say. Or we make a choice. We make a choice to accept it because God said it. It's only two ways every man or woman can walk. Fear or faith. One of those has hope. The other one will rob you of all your strength and hope. One of those will give you Strength and hope. In fact, that's what the scripture is about. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He hasn't lost you. He knows where you are. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah 55, God says, My ways are higher than your ways. You're not always going to understand what I'm doing. Can anybody say amen to that? Yeah, I don't always understand what God's doing. But I can always trust Him anyway. 
Because I know enough about what his word says to know that God is my deliverer. That he's got something going. And I can trust him. If he's got me walking through the valley of the shadow of death, then he'll walk right beside me. If he's put me in the fiery furnace, then he'll stand in the fire with me. He will not abandon me in the lion's den. He will not abandon me in the battle with the giants of life. God never leaves us alone. I will never leave you or forsake you. No matter how you feel, I am here. I am moving. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He says, there's nobody like me. I will give you everything you need. But we have to go through the first 39 chapters to say, to hear God say, trust me, trust me, trust me. Doesn't matter what it looks like, trust me. Don't put your hope in something else, trust me, trust me. Because when we choose to walk in faith with God, He promises you strength for the journey. I love Jeremiah, maybe because I give encouragement like he does. I don't know. But one of the things, I think it's Jeremiah who says it. He lays out this idea. He says, if you have run with the footman and you're weary, what will you do when the horses come? Nowhere in our walk did God say, you need to figure out how to do it. What God said is, for the journey, trust me, and I'll give you strength. And you won't faint. You won't falter. You won't fail. Because I'm with you in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm with you in the furnace. I'm with you against the giants. I'm with you. So receive the comfort of God, my people. Your king is coming to you. Gentle, meek, on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 Your king has come. Everything we need is in his hands. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. For this time, the opportunity to study your word, God, to look into the depths of Isaiah, God. And I pray, Lord, that we can be encouraged by the message that we find there. For ultimately, Lord, you are are challenging us to say, well, who better than God to trust, to cling to, to carry us through the scary parts of the water, the dark places in life, the hard Hikes, the difficult mountains.
Who better to go with than the one who makes the valleys flat, flattens out the mountains, and makes the path bearable for us? It's Him. He does it, not me. It's not my willpower. It's not the the power of my own mind or my own power over my body to, to stay away, to, to, to buffet myself until I reach some level of, of spiritual maturity. Oh, it's about trusting the King, clinging on to Jesus, realizing that He's my strength, He's my joy, He's everything I need for the journey that God has laid out before me. And He wants me to cling to Him. To say the words that Ruth said to Naomi, Where you go, I go. Your people, they are my people. And where you die, I die, and there I will be buried. You and me, till the wheels fall off. God, you and me. The most important relationship we can have on the face of this earth is with our Maker. For He is mighty to save. God, we give you praise. We give you glory and we give you thanks for what you are doing and continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I need you to soften my heart apart I need you to open my eyes to see that you're shaping my life 